Hi everybody, this is Chris from the editing room. I want to apologize to you in advance for this episode having some audio quality issues. I can explain it. Basically this weekend I've been tracking a lot of guitar stuff and I left my preamp when we went to tape this episode on the guitar settings. So I have good solid crunch that makes my Rickenbacker 330 sound nice and fat when it's driving into the Vox amp simulator. That's not necessarily the setting that I use for my voice. The one that I use for my voice does not have a high gain setting. So what ended up happening is I kept hitting this like gain threshold. It sounds really gnarly, and there's not anything I can do about it other than assure you up front that it won't happen again, and there's nothing wrong with your speakers. Uh, I tried my best to make this listenable. I rolled off some of the low end on my voice to make it a little less punchy whenever I crack out. And I did catch somewhere in the middle of this episode that something was wrong, but I couldn't quite figure it out. But I tried to throttle off of the microphone a little bit. Long story short, audio quality could have been better. It will be better. Sorry about that in advance. But there's a lot of good stuff on this episode. Some of the quote mining that went into this episode took me down some really interesting points of research that I knew nothing about before I got into it. So hopefully you enjoyed the extra audio that I added into this conversation. Brian's got this really interesting riff on AlphaGo that I think you're going to really enjoy in the middle of this show here. And what do you say we just get to it? Sorry again about my audio. gentlemen hello again and welcome back to don't worry about the government my name is chris novembrino and joining me on today's weekend of impeachment part two special brian halverson brian halverson welcome to weekend of impeachment i didn't know i was a part of something special here but uh, you're always part of something special every time you're on don't worry about the government Especially a part two of something special, you know, it's, it makes me feel like I have something to maintain or, or maybe even up, you know, take it to another level. So here we go. Here we go. Okay. All right. So let's start off. Let's fire off the hot take cannon. Brian, what do you think about all of this impeachment hullabaloo? Right time, wrong time, should have happened sooner, doesn't need to happen at all. Where stand you? Uh, I think it, it absolutely had to happen, and it had to happen sooner, but here we are. Um, I think uh, based on uh, playing the, uh, the the timing of it, the timing may be better for reasons I don't quite understand as far as uh, going into the, uh, the election uh, cycle. Uh, if that were the case, I would have to give Pelosi some type of credit for, uh, you know, in, interpreting the 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 election calendar in ways that I can't quite, you know, envision. But uh, I really don't see that as her sort of play. Uh, she uh, she uh, is uh, just dealing with this at this point. I, I think this was something that. Uh, um, Pelosi, for some reason, saw some value in the Ukraine angle, um, or at least this this uh, this is more this angle is more enticing to her than previous angles, 
but like I said in previous uh, in a previous episode with you, Chris, uh, um, I'm left wondering why is Ukraine uh, the tipping point where everything else before Ukraine was not? On the last episode, I said I think a big part of it is that. This involves Joe Biden, the person that the establishment wants to be their nominee for the Democratic presidential ticket here coming up in 2020. So I think that's a big part of it. I think that this also took place during the Trump presidency. I think that makes a big difference. Although the obstruction part of the Mueller probe took place during the Trump presidency, there were all these crimes, including ones that he was committing in October of 2016 that took place before he was president. The Democrats have felt different about that. Also, Republicans have made like phony red lines in the past. Well, if Trump committed a crime while president, that would be a crime. Uh, You know, things like that. So I think that this is, it is a notch above the Russia stuff. And then you could even go further and say, Everything that we learned in the Mueller probe and also what we saw Trump do with Benjamin Netanyahu a couple of weeks ago, it shows that Trump's going to keep doing this and that, like, essentially her position was politically untenable. I, I view a big chunk of why she's doing everything this week as a pretty damning admission that this whole we'll just wait it out and he's just not worth it strategy didn't work at all. He was worth it and they shouldn't have waited it out. Yeah, I've I've heard... Pelosi quoted as saying public sentiment is everything. Um, and that's the that's the the prism that I I do my best to take her at her word, but whenever it obviously doesn't align, I I then think that's just what you're supposed to say. The worst part about the public sentiment thing is there were people myself included, who were arguing for a very long time that public sentiment would move if the Democrats moved because people look at their politicians for cues on how they're supposed to feel about various issues. It's like the most obvious thing in the world, except to some in the media who think that the politicians look to the people and then they act. No, it goes the other way around. The people are looking at how their politicians feel, and that tends to dictate a lot of how they feel about things. You look at your favorite politician, and unless your favorite politician is saying something completely bonkers today, you're probably going to agree with your favorite politician. What happened? The Democrats, uh, who are a lot of people's favorite politicians, change their position on impeachment. And what happens? The rest of the party goes with them because now no longer are they sitting in dissonance with their favorite politicians. Now they're in agreement and they were already excited to be there. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great approach for, for why uh, one of them is the tail and one of them is the dog. Trump he also knows how to read his base, too. There's this great feedback loop that he established with his base super early on in 2015, where they were telling him, build that wall, build that wall. And then Trump was like, oh, build that wall. And they started cheering louder. And Trump's like, oh, I get it. You guys tell me what I think. And I also tell you what you think. This works back and forth. The Democratic establishment has a really hard time with that. There, It... It feels like Chuck and Nancy are scolding me every time I see them on the television screen. It's like my parents have showed up, all of a sudden they suck, and now they're really bumming me out by giving me a stern lecture. Yeah. Yeah, it, it uh, makes you feel like a, I don't know, a teenager of sorts. Uh, 
uh, a teenager who's been been caught. Uh, yeah, I, I, they, they definitely don't give off the right vibe in order to, uh, um, you know, there's some sort of composure that you, you expect out of them or some sort of, uh, resilience or, uh, that they just don't offer. So I was thinking this week, I made a joke about this, but I think it's actually true. I've joked that accelerationism is the flight 93 election of the left of center. But the more I think about it, I'm looking at a headline right now as we're taping latest polls, Justin Trudeau's blackface scandal has no noticeable effect on the race. There were a lot of people, for those of you who aren't familiar with accelerationism, there were a lot of people who believed going into the 2016 election, I was one of them, that Donald Trump and his election would bring on such a decline in the country that people would be like, man, this is unacceptable. And and I thought that that would yield the most progressive Democratic presidential nominee we ever had. And it looks like that part of the prediction is good. However, this is the problem with that calculus is that the bar gets lowered and lowered and lowered and eventually everyone just plays up to the lowered standard and then anyone who can pass this exceedingly low bar seems like there's some sort of crazy high jumper that they're Michael Jordan you know flying towards the rim from the free throw line when all they've done is you know done like a little hop over the lowest bar possible Trump has set this bar really low and that low bar is rippling internationally too now you have Boris Johnson Justin Trudeau with this blackface is another kind of good example we're expecting less out of our world leaders this isn't accelerating us to a better place it's hastening us to a less good place. Yeah, I, I think accelerationism, in in order for it to really take hold, you have to someone you have to have someone capitalizing upon that effect going on. Yeah, it has to be uh, deliberative too, right? You can't just say, "Oh, let's just hope for accelerationism." Like you'd actually have to have someone who's catalyzing. Right, right. I, I think there are some times in, in, in history where just the news cycle has produced this effect by accident. Um, and, and people have uh, benefited from that accident occurring. But it's the person who willfully exploits accelerationism that's the problem. And we, I, I think we all know Trump is exploiting it. Do you see Trudeau exploiting it in the same way? No, I I brought up Trudeau more as a sign of a lowered bar. Okay. The idea is that we have all these horrible things happen. Ideally, Ralph Northam comes out in blackface. This shocks the nation into thinking, you know, Democrat or Republican, it really doesn't fucking matter. If you got blackface on, I don't fucking need you representing us in the year 2020. That's the accelerationist hope. The unfortunate reality we all live in is that what happens is Ralph Northam comes in, offers to do the moonwalk, and then we don't get rid of Ralph Northam because Justin Fairfax also has problems. Oopsie dipsy. And so we don't want to risk that. And, and what ends up happening is we just lower the bar. We find a way to make like an exception for blackface if you're a Democratic governor and we really need that governor house. Oh, that's It's just... 
I think there is a a connection to the uh, the post truth society that we we've or the post truth culture. Um, I, I don't know exactly the 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 correct word to add after post truth, but. I think there's a definite connection between acceleration and post. I'll give you another example of accelerationism dying on the vine, but this was something where people thought we were going to get to a good place on. Al Franken resigning. Yeah. A lot of pressure was brought to bear on Al Franken. And at the time, the narrative was, and of course it's shifted in a little bit of revisionist history, but the narrative was is we're going to do this and it's going to set a new standard in Congress, and that might even ripple all the way to the White House. So you had 30 Democratic senators calling for Al Franken's resignation over the allegations surrounding him. They couldn't get to 30 senators when it came to Donald Trump. The momentum, we didn't accelerate, the momentum just petered out. Um, I think the problem with accelerationism, I guess, is inertial forces. And there are inertial forces in politics all over the place. Yeah, and I, I also think, you know, the Franken, the Franken example is great because it also pinpoints how uh, people were reacting to him in the sense of, well, if we don't respond quickly to this, then people are going to consider us waffling as opposed to deliberating. Uh, and and that, that's the conflation here that, that I think acceleration really um, marginalizes, is deliberation and due process is considered to be waffling uh, in the eyes of the voter, or at least with, with respect to the, how the candidates see the game. Um, they, they're not willing to have an honest conversation about certain things because the time that that takes could make them appear to be falsely, uh, waffling or falsely, you know, uh, sticking behind someone you, you, you otherwise wish this didn't happen to. Yeah. And that's a different type of speed in politics so accelerationism when i was talking about it before here that is more the idea that we do one thing to accelerate the advancement of a political agenda um but what you're referring to i think and this is a different facet of that saga not that i want to go back to that particular saga and revisit it all is that there is this issue and this kind of brings us back to today as well of dithering and slowing down really hurting your momentum and the momentum thing that's a big issue right now it's not clear whether or not the democrats are going to take this two-week break and i think if they take this two-week break that is absolute madness Uh, i actually saw that this was a fight an inter-squad fight this week with ilhan omar and i on the same side against ayanna presley ayanna presley thinks that We need to go back and we need to talk to the voters and deal with the people's business because we're right on the cusp of passing all this great legislation because we have a really good president who's going to pass good laws into law. Yeah, I... There's nothing wrong with the president, so don't worry about that. Just write the laws and put it on his desk. Hmm. Yeah, um, I want to know more about this inner squad. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm embarrassed to, to... not know more about it already, but 
The, it's not drums like Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley are in any personal spat, but they don't agree on whether or not to take the break here. So uh, that I, when I framed it as a fight, I was saying it's more a debate between members, uh, not a personalized debate, just a difference in positions. Yeah, if and honestly, if it would it would really give me some sort of hope in the system if. Uh, if two people who otherwise agree can be publicly disagreeing about this, uh, that would be a nice uh, breath of fresh air as far as just uh, the ability for for uh, to break down this veneer of solidarity that that really doesn't it doesn't pay off for me. I know it pays off in other ways. And I know I'm not the typical voter uh, that they're trying to cater to either, but uh, I just want to go back to that talking point that I have seen bandied around by some who have never been particularly into the Mueller probe and impeaching Donald Trump. This idea that somehow we're not going to get Medicare for all done or more realistically gun legislation done. Well, Brian, would you like to explain to the good people why gun legislation most certainly was not going to get done? Uh, uh, apparently, part of the, uh, the conversation recently between Trump and LaPierre was, uh, we'll help you with, uh, with uh, your getting reelected just so long as gun control never uh, uh, is legislated uh, during your term. Uh, so that basically means that the chances of gun legislation, which was not very likely, it's not as though the Republicans had really changed their tune on this. The chances of gun legislation getting passed were non-existent. And it keeps going back to, you know, OK, yes, I get it. It would be nice to be able to work on the constructive legislative agenda that this country legitimately needs. However, all of that comes to a screeching halt when the guy who signs the bills into law is not up to the fucking job. Yeah, and this also, I've I've been kind of uh, uh, I've I've been hoping to poke the NRA bear in ways that I think I was misguided previously. Um, I saw LaPierre and the the NRA, uh, you know, uh, and in, the NRA existence as dwindling based on the recent uh, conversations in the media about how LaPierre is kind of losing hold. Um, they're just rebranding. Uh, they're rebranding towards something I, I don't quite understand yet, but... The money is still all there, obviously, or at least there's enough money that they're able to bring to the table to uh, to make these to call these sorts of shots. And uh, that's um, I, I was really hoping there was something to be exposed here or there was some sort of weakness that uh, could be you know, capitalized upon as far as gun control legislation or. You know, uh, maybe the GOP picks a different uh, uh, pet uh, issue to attach themselves to unilaterally. But no, th- this is it. And uh, it, they might not be beholden to the NRA uh, forever, but, but that's only because the NRA is just changing into something else. Uh, they, 
I don't know what they're going to call themselves, but it's just same, same sort of group, different sort of brand. And, uh, um, you know, it, it makes sense. They, they've been the NRA, you know, as we know it for, uh, lo- longer than a generation, you know, in, in the, in the late seventies, they changed from a, from a, a sportsman's group to a, uh, a group that, uh, just, uh, you know, is, a uh, keeping the football from, uh, you know, advancing the football as far as you can and, and uh, uh, keeping the football from, uh, from going backwards, you know, for by any means necessary and for any reason necessary. Uh, and you only give up ground when you have to. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, there, it, it makes sense that now's the time to rebrand it. And as you and I have talked about off air, the... Uh, the GOP in and of itself is is in in sort of a uh, a, a moment of, of need to rebrand. You want to pivot over to Tulsi Gabbard. Speaking of somebody who might be thinking about rebranding at some point. Oh man, uh, yeah. Um, going on Tucker Carlson's show, doing the Rubin Report, and then going on the Hills Rising and saying. There's, of course, the transcript of the president of the United States, the phone call with Ukraine that has been released. You've spoken previously about impeachment last night. You thought it would be incredibly divisive for the country. This is something that much of the caucus, though, seems united in pursuing. Has your mind changed on the issue of impeachment after that transcript has come out? It hasn't. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you step outside of the bubble here in Washington and and you get to where most folks in the country are, uh, look, I'm not a lawyer, but I think most people reading through that transcript are not going to find that uh, extremely compelling cause to throw out a president that won an election in 2016. And Mm -hmm. instead, what I think most people will see is, hey, this is uh, another move by Democrats uh, to get rid of Donald Trump, further deepening the already uh, hyper-partisan divides that we have in this country, and, and that's really where, where I'm coming from. What do you say to people who say, is there any line that he could cross? You know, of course impeachment would be divisive, but there has to be check and balance. We have to uphold the rule of law. He's gone way beyond what's appropriate or proper for a president. We have to draw the line somewhere. Uh, I don't like to speak in, in hypotheticals, uh, take every situation as they come, but the American people are, are aware of what is happening. They are seeing how this thing is playing out. And I think it's, again, most important for them to be the ones who make the decision about who our next president should be, Mm -hmm. uh, understanding how self-serving this president is and why it's important that we as a country, Democrats, Republicans, independents, come together to defeat him. Kind of playing into the right-wing narrative really leads me to believe that Tulsi Gabbard has something other on her mind than winning the nomination and running against Donald Trump in 2020. I, whatever is on her mind, uh, she is definitely not running, or, or, or she is definitely not uh, ending her, her campaign. Uh, she has some sort of agenda uh, to redirect her campaign uh in in a direction that uh, I, I guess is to be disclosed, but uh, for, as far as it looks like, like she's trying to uh, position herself to 
to be the uh, the the third party candidate who can who can take take votes from the left and the right, um, and that that opportunity has been there. And and as someone who uh, you know, I I make no bones about it. I mean, I I I desperately want someone in the third party realm to to attain five percent just to just to uh, show the country at large the the power of that but um you know if if it has to be gabbard uh it, it's it's gonna make me kind of uh uh it, it the be careful what you wish for because you just might get it isms this is kind of like a monkey's oh, paw version man. of getting what yeah. you want but i mean if if the if the byproduct of her actually achieving that leads to the nation at large reconsidering how they how they view the electoral college uh, I honestly will take it. I, I I wish there was a different messenger. Welcome, my friend, to transactionalism. Oh, yeah, third party transactionalism. Isn't that a strange pocket right there? Good grief. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I honestly wish uh, I knew of a way to uh, convince the 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 typical voter. Uh, to embrace transactionalism, because I also think that is a uh, that is the first step towards embracing a voting strategy, and that's the and embracing a voting strategy means you know you don't look at the electoral college like it's a popular vote, and this is not uh, this is not offering uh, a party solidarity uh, when they obviously don't earn it, um, and. Uh, I mean, I've I've thought of many angles to just speak to the electoral college and speak to a voting strategy up front, but it obviously needs some sort of buffer, um, or else it, you know it would have happened irrespective of, of any argument I've posed. Um, but getting people towards transactionalism, I think, is is uh, is is the first step, um, and and. I think it's a, it's a much easier hurdle to achieve than uh, to actually get the uninformed voter to to really consider how the electoral college is different than a, a popular vote. Here's where I think Tulsi could get to your five percent, but this does give me heartburn. I'm not going to lie. She shows up and unifies the libertarian and green party tickets because the two crowds on the internet that constantly argue whether or not Tulsi Gabbard is one of them or acceptable to their smell test are libertarians, libertarian bros who kind of want to Sarah Palin her, and then also left bros who also kind of want to Sarah Palin her. Um, I could see her getting that green and libertarian nomination basically running on a no more regime change war sort of platform and having the most name recognition of anyone there and being the most attractive person who's been in either one of those rooms in a very long time. And she gets the nomination and then she gets to 5%. And all of a sudden, Donald Trump, who is embroiled in problems, now has an amazing outdoor to winning re-election. Yeah, yeah, depending on where she draws votes from and depending on what her... her prerogative is and her, 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 her third party campaign strategy. I just don't see her picking up Trumpers. No. You know what no. I mean? Like maybe a handful of independents or whatever, but no, I, I see her picking up 
some of the any number of the 22 other people who are not going to end up being the nominee, picking up some of those votes, sponging that up. And I think everyone else who's with Trump, like they're on this fucking trolley until this trolley's off the track. Yeah, and and when you look at uh, the messaging coming out of the Gabbard camp in the last few weeks, um, there have been some uh, fingers pointed towards, I think it was Howie Hawkins, uh, um, but uh, you can already tell that who's Howie Hawkins. Uh, I believe that's one one of the uh, previous uh, Green Party nominees. Wow, that's uh, an interesting flash. Yeah. That's an early flash. Man, I, I'm going to have to look this up to verify. But at least sometime in the last couple of weeks, there, there's been a uh, uh, some sort of Howie Hawkins. Certainly doesn't feel that way, and and you know I'm I'm. Uh, definitely not remembering the whole the whole uh, angle here I, I can't flush it out but but it, it, it gave me kind of a, a window into you know where they're trying to uh, go on the offensive and uh, I honestly thought uh, not to pivot too far away from Gabbard but I honestly thought Andrew Yang had some sort of potential here but uh, um, I at this point, he just wants the Democratic yeah, nomination. Yeah. You know, he's a true outsider. He's 100% a true outsider. He has no interest in being a spoiler. He wants to advance this idea of UBI. I think he's really serious about that. I think he is what he says he is. You can agree with it. You cannot agree with it. I like about 80% of what Yang has to say that he does 20% of things that I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, my dude? Yeah. I don't understand this. Um, and, and I'm not on board with it. But, uh, no, I don't think he wants to be a third-party spoiler. He has no intention of doing that. I think he's trying to win the Democratic nomination. He's trying to build out a brand, and not for nothing. If the Democrats don't win this time around, and Yang's still hanging around, he's going to keep having college cred. Like, I, as I said before, I'll say it again, he's the Bernie Sanders of this race, and I'm aware Bernie Sanders is in this race, but the guy who is going to build up credibility at the colleges, the guy who's going to be around and maintain that college credibility for the next 8, 10 years, this is the guy. He's going to keep being out there with this idea, and he'll be back out there again this next election cycle. I think Yang's in it for the long haul, um, but he, th to that point, he's also not in it to win it this time, and I don't think he wants to be a spoiler that inflicts more Trump on society. Yeah, I, I still think Yang's biggest value is just bringing up the the issues that he does um, at a time when he does it, and he's he's furthering these uh, these conversations uh, more than anyone else. And he's, uh, but as far as being the third. And not to sound like Pete Buttigieg here, but if he's right, like we think he is, eventually society is going to catch up to him in sure, about 10 sure. years. But what I could think he'd, what I could see him doing, because he's a very, you know, as far as his, his mantra of make America think harder or what, what, what was it? What make America smarter? Yeah, man, they, he, they just wanted yeah, to have a math sure. hat, and then they retroactively came up with well, a slogan. That, that's fine, and and one of the things that he could help educate America with is simply, if he doesn't win the Democratic nomination, which I don't think he will, he could run as a third-party candidate and say, I am only on the ballot in the in the 40 safest states. And I am not even on the ballot in the ten swing in the ten states that swing the most. 
And that message, just running in that way, could provide a message that, you know, awakens people to a, uh, to a degree as far as how the Electoral College really works. And uh, I wish he could, uh, uh, you know, I, I hope Tulsi Gabbard does something like that. I really doubt she would. But I think Andrew Yang is a sort of is the that's the worst part about her is I don't see her as being interested in any of the long term what I would consider to be third party necessary yeah. projects. Yeah. She's not interested in breaking up the Electoral College. She's interested in building out herself. Um, even, you know, the end all regime change wars thing. That's basically just saying let the Assads of the world run wild. So, like, yeah, if you're cool with Rodrigo Duterte, um, if you're cool with the Chinese harvesting the organs out of fucking Uyghurs, okay, fine. I'm not saying we need to go and invade all of these people, but when you say no more regime change wars, you're kind of taking that blasé attitude towards human rights, and I think that's only tenable for so long, and it's really hard to be tenable in a world where we have to deal with climate change. Yeah, and it also makes me wonder where her her real um, third-party uh, demographic is, because there, there are only so many demographics that will accept that attitude. Uh, it overlaps with the Gravel yeah. gang. So it actually makes a lot of sense that Gravel did this run again here and got the left bona fides. And this was not talked about. I don't even know if we talked about this on the show, but when Gravel ran in 2008, what happened is initially he ran as a Democrat and he got on the stage and he did his, you know, fire brandy short of shtick. And then that didn't work out. And he ended up running for the libertarian nomination and had the help of a bunch of leftists. Hot hoes. Mike Gravel is a presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. If he looks familiar, maybe you saw him earlier this year when he ran for president as a Democrat. And, and I gotta tell you, after standing up with them, some of these people frightened me. They frightened me. Before that, he spent 12 years as a U.S. Senator from Alaska. Oh, and he recently tried to woo Obama girl away from the Illinois Senator and Democratic presidential frontrunner. I'm seeking the presidency. You should drop your crush on Obama. CQ Politics interviewed Gravel recently at a libertarian debate held by Reason Magazine. I had to make an assessment. Do I run as a libertarian? and not get any attention to the national initiative? Or do I run as a Democrat, since I was a Democrat, and they had forgotten that I was such a maverick, and uh, run as a Democrat and get, get into the debates? And so I ran as a Democrat. But I, I thought of running as a libertarian, but I wouldn't have advanced why I was running for office. And Tulsi Gabbard, insofar as she has any actual concrete positions on anything, the end-all regime change wars talking point is the one that she's really consistent on. I think this last week, with the Medicare for All back and forth that she that she had, um, where is she at on Medicare for All right now? I think what she's getting uh, targeted for is kind of saying something similar to what Bernie Sanders has said, only. 
being more upfront about it really is uh is talking about how she doesn't want to close off private health care uh just because Medicare for all uh um just because she's for Medicare for all she wants to uh maintain a private health care system for people who want to purchase it um Wait, private health care or private, private insurance. insurance? I'm sorry, private insurance. Man, there is so much flim- yeah. No, I know, I'm not trying to yeah, yeah. get on you, but boy, I my head is starting to fucking spin on Medicare for All, and now everyone says Medicare for All, and like, we got like frameworks, and is it a framework, or is it real Medicare for All? Like, oh my god, dude. My head started to spin on health care policy. Nobody actually knows what any of these bills yeah, are Yeah, but the, that combined with her... Her stance on to impeach or not to impeach. Let's talk a little bit about development since the last episode of Don't Worry About the Government on the impeachment front. Since we finished taping that episode, actually, Sean and I were on the air as this happened. Volker, it was reported, this is the former ambassador to the Ukraine. He is out of the State Department, which is important because you might remember that clip that I played on the last show from Sky News, where Rudy has now said and fingered the State Department as these are the people who sent me over to the Ukraine or sent me over to Ukraine. Don't call it the Ukraine. That's actually like mm-hmm. offensive. Um, it, it means the outer regions um, like translated and like the implication is the outer regions of Russia. So Ukraine, it's its own country. Ukraine, he's over there in Ukraine and his version of events is that he was doing this at the behest of the state department. Also, after I finished taping this and I recommend this to everyone who is listening, Trump Inc is a great podcast series, but they did an episode called Rudy Inc., where they detailed a bunch of things, and this was last year in 2018, so long before this. They detailed Rudy Giuliani's longstanding relationship with Ukraine, and it this company, Tri Global, is kind of the nexus of all of it. You'll have to listen to the rest of the show to get more of a sense of this, but Rudy's ties over there run deep, and let's not forget about Paul Manafort, who is now in jail, but Paul Manafort, he was the campaign manager for Viktor Yanukovych, who was the president of Ukraine. The the, the more that these connections uh, come out, uh, it seems like Gi- Giuliani uh, is... God, if there's one person who's not playing 3D chess... It's Giuliani, but he also has a way of uh, just talking through any sort of, uh, uh, you know, talking through any sort of of uh, of uh, media engagement where he doesn't lose street cred. Yeah, but the key word there is the media yeah. engagement. I think this is a different thing once he's yeah. under oath. Oh, okay, okay. Now, is there any uh, is is there any frame of reference for that, or when has he when has he faced anything similar, or has he? Not too recently. He might have faced something during the Mueller probe, but you have to imagine that he's going to be facing something now involving these impeachment hearings and this impeachment inquiry. And if Rudy Giuliani is on C-SPAN and he's under oath. They're going to crack him like a fucking egg, dude. He he 
this week alone, did you see him on, I think it was Ingram's show, where he starts comparing Mitt Romney to Al Gore and then does an impression of Al Gore? No, no, I didn't see that. He's not all there anymore. I'm not making a mental diagnosis. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing on the TV. I'm seeing a human being who does not have all of the marbles that go to their set anymore. They got a bunch of them. They know where most of them are, but they're not all there anymore. If Rudy Giuliani had died, let's say, 15 years ago, and especially if he had died in some sort of tragedy, they would have built fucking statues to that guy. It would not have mattered that he had fucked his cousin. Wouldn't have mattered a bit. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, just based on 9-11 Street Crate alone. Yeah. yeah. Now, Rudy might go to jail. It's not impossible. Yeah, between... Between... He's been conducting U.S. federal government business as not a member of the U.S. federal government. No one's ever been tried under the Logan Act, but I talked to a friend of mine who thought Tulsi Gabbard should have been tried under the Logan Act. I think that's fucking bonkers. Although I completely disagree with what she did with Assad. This? Man, I think you probably could try Rudy Giuliani under the Logan Act. I'm not saying they should, but this is the type of realm that Rudy Giuliani is tiptoeing himself into or has already tiptoed himself into. Yeah, and I guess when you uh, when you talk about him changing between media engagement and being sworn uh, being sworn in, uh, if if he's defending himself under something like that, uh, I don't see himself uh, I don't see Giuliani uh, um, maintaining the only defense to the Logan Act charges and this might actually be the way you get Giuliani the only defense to the Logan Act charge that you were conducting state business without the authorization of the United States government or the necessary requisite certifications of the United States federal government on behalf of the U.S. federal government is if Rudy was explicitly doing Trump a favor which is to say he's in a total fucking double bind here because if Rudy's doing Trump a favor, now Trump has problems again with that Zelensky phone call. Whether or not Giuliani buckles under that under that charge, uh, I don't see him sticking up for Trump to that degree. He's already buckling. They are super close, though. I keep going back to in my head, though I wish I wouldn't. Rudy Giuliani dressed up in drag getting sexually harassed by Donald Trump. It takes a special sort of relationship with someone to make that video. Oh, man, I want to go back and watch that. Uh, Just to... uh, For research? Yeah, for research. (laughs) All right, you wanted to talk about AlphaGo and its application in politics. Let's talk about that a little bit. How do you see the AlphaGo lessons. For those who are not familiar with AlphaGo, you'll have to do a little bit of a setup here. But how do you see the AlphaGo lessons okay. applying to politics? So um, AlphaGo is a, is a documentary that came out. Uh, I don't know if it was a Netflix documentary or just featured on Netflix. Uh, uh, over, over the summer, uh, probably a couple months ago. 
Um, and uh, um, AlphaGo is an attempt uh, by a, uh, a an outfit who uh, taught artificial intelligence how to play the game Go. So for those of you who might be old enough to remember this, in the 1990s, companies built computer programs to compete in chess, and eventually one of those computer programs defeated Gary Kasparov. This game, Go, is much, much, much more complicated. Yes, it's, it's simpler in some ways. It's simpler in that every, every piece that you place... Uh, uh, it, it doesn't have its own in, uh, uh, like there are no pawns or queens or kings or knights or the, the, there are only just stones that you place. And this is, uh, your, your attempt with playing these stones is to, uh, uh maintain as much territory on the board as possible, uh, to where by the end of the game, you possess more territory by surrounding perimeters of territory than your opponent. Um, the, the, the problem is uh, with a computer program uh, teaching a computer program the game Go as opposed to chess, uh, there are so many different variations that uh, the, uh, the program would just be... Um, uh, there isn't a computer uh, out there that, that can... Uh, handle that 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 sort of I mean it doesn't exist and so that's why artificial intelligence uh, was a much better um, uh, technology to use as far uh, as opposed to a computer program because uh, the, the the AI can just begin to learn the game and and have problems and learn from their mistakes and where a program doesn't learn from its mistakes it just is uh, and so um, uh, AlphaGo was the documentary that shows this uh, artificial intelligence acquiring the capability uh, to uh, oppose people who are uh, Go players in the professional world. Uh, in, in the East, especially in Korea, uh, in South Korea, uh, Go, is, uh, Go is like the NFL of of south korea it's serious yeah. business and um it's uh so is starcraft starcraft is very very popular over at south korea, i've heard still. yeah i don't want to get too far into the weeds with that but yeah they, they definitely uh attach themselves uh you know if if you want to look at their culture um they make celebrities out of the smartest people among them <laughs> And uh, Lee, Lee Sedol is is the the master Go player right now, and and uh, uh, he is a, a celebrity in South Korea, and and, uh, and as well as you know throughout the world in in the Go playing community. Uh, but what the uh, whenever uh, artificial intelligence uh, met Lee Sedol, who is uh, you know as as far as the Go community is concerned. He may be the best Go player uh, in recorded history. Uh, they, they, they really don't. They, he, he set precedence as far as his, his playing style and and how uh, he, he is almost playful with with his competition in, in certain ways, just to 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 be uh, 
more entertained by the game. Like, like he's on that sort of level. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, the big takeaway though, which is why artificial intelligence, uh, the, the alpha go, uh, beat him in, in, in most of the games that they played, uh, was because, um, there is no, uh, interest at all in, in artificial intelligence winning by a, a greater margin that's necessary. Um, and what that means is that any human, whenever they're playing and whenever they're uh, uh, using a strategy in order to play this game, there is always some underlying uh, um, facet of their strategy which reveals that they're trying to win by more than what's necessary. Um, and so because of that, it actually is a flaw in your strategy. Um, and that's why artificial intelligence was able to, uh, to develop a strategy which had certain types of moves that uh, have never been seen before, have never been played, have never been understood, have never even been uh, thought of. Uh, that there, were, there were specific moves that, that uh, AlphaGo made that were considered a one in 10,000 chance of a human actually playing that move. Because bef before now, it was considered an error. Uh, but when you... AlphaGo is going to give right. ground up and force you to actually accommodate for the error. And that error ends up... That mistake... One mistake gives them two gains. That right. sort of and, and also, they... The AlphaGo was willing to uh, um, pivot the game in certain ways, where uh, uh, as as the game unfolded, there could be one move that uh, just looks curious at, at in the onset. It looks like a curious move that that uh, Lisa at all didn't understand, but when you look at the game at the end. You, you look back at that move and you realize, oh, th this, this is why, this is why Lisa all lost and why AlphaGo won. Uh, and so as I was watching this, uh, you know, Chris, I think, you know, I, I have a lot of trouble divorcing my, myself from, uh, from safe state politics in, in general, but like my radar is always on, I guess. Uh, and so whenever they were talking about how, you know, the greater takeaway is that AI never tries to win by more than what's necessary, um, that instantly made me think of the Electoral College. Okay, so... Um, it makes me think of the filibuster. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I want to hear more about that. But uh, with, with respect to the Electoral College, um, there is a value in the landslide victory. There is a, there is, uh, uh, whenever, whenever a president has won by a landslide, it's seen as a, a referendum on the other party. Uh, it's, uh, when, when Reagan won by as much as he did, or, or when Roosevelt won by as much as he did, um, that was seen as kind of like a, a punch to the gut to the other party. Well, that is the only value to the landslide victory. And in exchange for that, in exchange for that landslide victory, uh, what, what do you give up? And what you give up is uh, 
instead of uh, instead of just targeting one of two parties, uh, uh, the nation at large could have targeted both in in a sense. Uh, in other words, that same party could have won. Like when Reagan won by as much as he did. Um, Wait, are you saying that Trump alpha goed us? Uh, Trump Cambridge Analytica us, and I, that's fair. <laughs> that's definitely yeah, fair. And, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but yeah, like now, now, there's a little bit of that going on, right? Well, see, Cambridge Analytica is the program, okay, and and we can presume, I think, that forever, as as long as as long as elections are are, are going to be held. There is going to be some sort of Cambridge Analytica element to every election, and and the only the only question is how do we marginalize the success of Cambridge Analytica endeavors, um, and the way that, oh yeah, and certainly this election right. cycle, and yeah. the and the way that I see any sort of population really respecting Cambridge Analytica endeavors is that look. There is going to be shenanigans that go on with the swing states, and um, and uh, what you have to do is to best ensure that um, while you may not catch every shenanigan that goes on in the swing states, for the other 45, 44, 46, for, for the other uh, remainder, you know, it's considered a remainder, but damn it, it's, it's the overwhelming majority of states. Um, you have to not give any sort of ground in those states than what you have to just, just out of complete necessity. In other words, you know, if, if you're going to, if, if you're in a red state and you're a red state voter, I understand if that you, you vote for, you know, uh, the, the GOP candidate, and if you're a blue state voter in a blue state, or if you're if you're a if, if you're a Democrat in a blue state, I understand that you you place your vote in order to win that election, or in order to win that state. But when you are a Democrat in a in a red state or a Republican in a blue state, and you give them that voter power, uh, that is where there is no. Balance. There is no leverage against the Cambridge Analytica endeavors uh, because those endeavors are going to succeed by some degree. You just don't know what. Um, what what AlphaGo really revealed to me is that um, there is an antidote of sorts, um, and uh, um, Go is very similar in ways to the Electoral College. Uh, in a way that uh, chess is very similar to the popular vote. Uh, chess is a war of attrition, uh, and uh, and and uh, alpha. Or, uh, I'm sorry. The electoral college format is not a war of attrition. It's a strategic. Uh, you have to use your resources. It's about capturing little boxes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that way, it's very similar to go. Like if you just get fifty percent, you capture that box. Right. Right. And so. Uh, when you look at a typical strategy that wins you a game of chess, if you took that same strategy and played go with it, you're, you're not ever going to succeed uh, 
uh, against. Have any- you ever tried to play shogi? Shogi's like a merger of chess and go, and it is super complicated because you have to like capture pieces and you can replay pieces. So you get that drop back on the board feel of go, but then they also move like chess pieces. Really complicated. Yeah, no, no. Check out Shogi. You you might really dig it. Oh, I will. Um, but with uh, uh, with the Electoral College, um, there in, in order to really in, ensure that you're playing, and and I, I I consider it a game. You know, uh, if 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 you're if you really want to play this game with uh, with an under you know, with, while revealing that you know how the game works, you, you you understand that the swing states are going to be gained, and therefore you don't give any sort of ground in every other state, um, and that's where you you keep that voter power in the hands of whatever third party you find that best represents you. Uh, and I, I guess what I'm saying is, the referendum vote. The landslide election, uh, it it offers sort of a a boxing match feel to 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 go back and forth from party to party. Like this party gives gives uh, one party gives the other uh, a haymaker and it lands, and then uh, you know years go by and and then and then that that same interest in landing that that haymaker. Is is sent back by the you know that that landslide election that that everyone wants, but that it's a fool's errand. The interest in the landslide election is is what uh, is what misinforms people about the true nature of the electoral college because they find that to be the ultimate victory. The ultimate victory is to win three hundred and something points and to just demoralize the other side, but that. It doesn't pay off. It doesn't. No, and that's not how it cashes out. Like political capital doesn't work like that. Once you get into office, you can have a massive electoral college victory, and it can translate into a lot of political capital. See Barack Obama, but he also had like economic headwinds that, or actually tailwinds that were kind of lifting him up and giving him even more political capital. Then you can have someone like George Bush who limps into office and then all of a sudden a crisis occurs and that gives him a major political capital tailwind. So these things are really tricky to predict as well. Um, Now, to go back to AlphaGo a little bit and what I was talking about, the filibuster, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there has been this debate among Bernie and Warren supporters primarily because the establishment has decided they're very much in favor of the filibuster. But Bernie has said he would keep the filibuster, and Liz has said she would get rid of the filibuster. I think AlphaGo is saying fairly clearly here, the optimal strategy is 50 votes plus one. So do everything through reconciliation. Don't even worry about this norm of the filibuster. And I I mean, AlphaGo wouldn't even price in the norm, but like, what is left of that norm anyways, especially as Mitch McConnell has been using 50 votes to pass everything he wants to pass anyways. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point, and uh, um, there there are so many different there are so many different ways where once you begin to really decipher uh, how a lot of our governance works and a lot of our election system works, it goes it cuts against the grain of human behavior. Um, it's very uh, 
it, well, it's it, trying to build consensus and shit, and it's from an era where that would feel good. But I think you know the problem is the founders thought that having the rules like that would force good behavior. And I think it's the other way around. Good behavior allows you to set the rules like that. Yeah, yeah. And the, the for instance, I, I, I think the popular vote format uh, is much more aligned with, with how uh, traditionally people uh, get emotional under the influence of politics. Uh, and... Oh, I think that's borne out by the world, too, right? You think about all these different countries that have adopted democratic systems. I looked up at one point the number of countries that have something like an electoral college, and I let that be pretty broad, and it's all small countries, and the number of countries that have something like an electoral college, almost nothing's quite like our electoral college, it's under 10. Yeah. This didn't translate across the world. Like this is not an idea that ported anywhere else. So yeah. And I think you're right. I think the human nature is the popular vote. Yeah. And it's, it's also human nature to want to replace it, uh, uh, uh to, 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 to get rid of the electoral college and to say that, you know, our best efforts are to, you know, to go towards uh, ranked choice voting or uh, uh, just a general popular vote. But the constraints we have uh, as far as how to actually make that happen, uh, I don't really see a viable pathway to, to replacing it. This is like the Queen over in England, where everyone who thinks about it for two seconds realizes that England in the 21st fucking century does not need to have a monarchy. And that monarchy is basically functionally useless at this point. And they need to actually update and modernize their system and have been getting by on ad hoc processes for a very long time here. Well, yeah. And the Electoral College system is our queen. Anyone from the outside looks at it and goes, it's fucking stupid as shit. Y'all should just get rid of it. And then you have these forces of retrenchment here in the United States that are like, no, but there's a good reason for this. And there isn't. Yeah. Now, as far as the constitutional monarchy goes, I might say as far as human behavior, I would rather have someone fawning over a, a cult of personality who doesn't have that much power as opposed to fawning over the president or wanting the president to have that much power, which I think is the much more dangerous trend that we're currently on here in America. We keep expanding out executive power and you even see a lot of people now, and this is not exclusive to any one candidate. They want their preferred candidate to pass a lot of executive orders when they get in as the Democratic president of the United States. And George Bush expanded out executive authority massively after 9-11 using the Patriot Act, but also by restructuring the entire federal government administrative state. That's when he created DHS. Barack Obama said that he was going to be a constitutional lawyer. He is a constitutional lawyer, constitutional law professor, but that he was going to go in and roll back stuff and kick things back to Congress where stuff belonged. And then he didn't do any of that. In fact, he did more stuff through the executive branch and more stuff through the administrative state. And now Donald Trump has not only 
expanded out executive authority. He said, administrative state, fuck that. They're all conspiring against me. I'm going to consolidate all the power to me, and I'm going to make all of my administrators acting so I can cut off their balls whenever I want. We are creeping to a more imperial-style presidency with a Senate and a Congress that serves a function. It's not quite like Caesar and Rome, but we're on that, like, spectrum. I don't think we ever get to the end of the spectrum. I don't think it's necessarily a slippery slope, but it's a road. It's a road that the car is currently on, and it's not a good road for us to be on. We should be wanting to move back executive authority to the hands of Congress because Congress is Article One for a reason. Absolutely, and I think what's what's more frightening to me than Trump uh, throwing his weight around in that way, and even further. Uh, um, uh, narrowing uh how a president is seen to to uh wield his power what's more frightening to me is the voters expectation of that and the voter thinks that the president is uh doing uh a better job when the president does more executive things uh just because they can as opposed to um uh, as opposed to should they, uh, and and this is yeah that's that there's a positive feedback loop yeah, when the president yeah. does stuff and so now what the real what the real uh, test is is can we elect a president and be okay with them doing less executive things than Trump because Trump is the I mean if if Trump is not the, the clarion call of we've gone too far, then that means that every president from here on out, we're going to expect that president to go that far. Um, but it's, it's with the presumption that the uh, future presidents will wield this power more responsibly. But that's the, that's the, the, the phony, uh, that's the phony ground to capture. Uh, the, 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 the real, the real high road here is to say, not only was Trump a, a, a bad custodian of that power, but we can't allow future presidents to, to continue to concentrate that power, however good of a custodian they actually are. You just gave me an idea when to introduce the executive power reform bill. So Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren get elected. They're going through their first term. Hopefully it's going well. Who knows? You get into year four, going into the reelect, and in spring of that year when Congress is back in session, that's when you introduce the Executive Power Scaleback Act. Now, It'll be red meat for the opposition party. It'll make you look like Marcus Aurelius if on the off chance you lose, you've now neutered the position. Mm -hmm. All the politics play in your favor, and the optics look good. Like, they look wizened, right? Even if you get reelected, you're reassuring the public, nothing crazy is going to happen next time around. Temper yourself. Don't worry. Yeah, and, and that really has to come out of public sentiment because if... If you make that move, 
what I guess that could be something that is driven first by the candidate or by the the, the president, whether it's the hypothetical Warren or Sanders president. Um, I, well, the the other thing too is the opposition party at this point will be upset because they will have already had a legislative battle or two with the president here. They'll want to look like they're gaining something and winning something. And the Executive Power Scaleback Act will certifiably look like they're getting something and the opposition party is going to have a really, really hard time spinning this in a way that doesn't make them look disingenuous as shit. Yeah, yeah, that that is... Uh, I, and that's where I think the the DNC strategy is most woeful. Uh, they, they're not interested. It's, I can't remember the last time I could really look at a, at a move that they made and say, well, they really cornered the GOP on this one. (laughs) Like, when can you ever say that? Like they have, this week yeah. would be the first time. Well, not the DNC. Yeah. No, but seriously, like this this week, Nancy moved with the quickness. She changed the narrative on Trump. The news was programming Trump instead of Trump programming the news. This is the first time where I felt like, wow, the Democrats have actually played this pretty well thus far. Even that hearing with McGuire, if you throw out Adam Schiff's bizarre fucking satirical opening thing that he did, the ending of that hearing where he was cutting McGuire's balls off, like for the American people, that was pretty brutal. McGuire, if he is still in office a month from now, I'm going to be stunned. I think that guy's resigning really Mm. fast. Yeah, and it is still weird to hear... But it's weird to hear it out loud that Pelosi moved with a quickness on this because I, I understand that she moved with a quickness with respect to Ukraine. Uh, but as far as with respect to impeachment, um, she she definitely didn't. No, she didn't. But but this week she moved with a quickness. Yes. As far as the, the subject of Ukraine, uh, this this. Did go. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't have a bow on it yet, but it, it was a it was a job well done as far as uh, uh, creating a framework of impeachment. Am I allowed to use that word framework? All right, let's talk Eddie Snowden because I have a theory about what is happening with Eddie Snowden right now, and I want to run it by you. So let's just cut to the chase. Here's what I think's happening with Eddie Snowden. Eddie Snowden is back in the news recently. He's got a new book out. He's been doing a bunch of media. He kind of wants to come back to the United States, and he wants to stand trial. He wants to get out of Russia. I think what has happened is Snowden has realized that all of this Novichok-type stuff that happened in the UK, that flex... That was Russia showing that they can get to anyone, anytime, anywhere. And Snowden had outlived his usefulness a long time ago on this front. And so let's rewind it a little bit further. What do I think happened with Snowden? I think Ed Snowden is a legitimate whistleblower. I think that he 
was a guy, a young guy, who got a job inside of the United States government informational state, realized exactly how fucked up our informational state was being made because of the war on terror, seeing the digitalization of information gathering, intelligence gathering, sucking up everyone's information, and also murdering people using drones, making everything cold, mechanical, this AI that figures out everything and kills people at the end of it. This terrified Ed Snowden. So, being a man of his time, he looked at the news and he said, where is the one place where I can get the information I have out to the public? And he saw this journalist who had been writing fervently against the Iraq war, Glenn Greenwald, and this organization, WikiLeaks, that had put out a video called Collateral Murder. And he said, I think these guys are pretty legit. And he went to them. And then all of a sudden, he became enemy of the United States federal government once he released intelligence that they didn't want released, and he had to beat it out of the United States. And he did that. He ended up in Hong Kong, and then he didn't have a great strategy to get out of Hong Kong, and that's when he ended up in Russia, and he's basically been in pocket for Putin for a while. Thank you. We've got a really sensational, a really outrageous, I would say, video message from a person who received, a, who actually revolutionized the world by revealing the, uh, by leaking the information. I'd like to ask you a question about, about American Secret Services, Edward Snowden. And the bulk collection of private records by intelligence and law enforcement services. Recently in the United States, two independent White House investigations, as well as a federal court, all concluded that these programs are ineffective in stopping terrorism. They also found that they unreasonably intrude into the private lives of ordinary citizens, individuals who have never been suspected of any wrongdoing or criminal activity, and that these kind of programs are not the least intrusive means available to such agencies uh, for these investigative purposes. Now, I've seen little public discussion of Russia's own involvement in the policies of mass surveillance. So I'd like to ask you, does Russia intercept, store, or analyze in any way the communications of millions of individuals? And do you believe that simply increasing the effectiveness of intelligence or law enforcement investigations can justify placing societies rather than subjects under surveillance? Thank you. Okay, so Mr. Putin, I guess you understand the question overall. Mr. Snowden, you are, are a former agent, a spy. I used to be working for an intelligence service. We are going to talk one professional language. First of all, our intelligence efforts are strictly regulated by our law, so how special forces can use this kind of special equipment as they intercept uh, phone calls or uh, follow someone online and you have to get a court permission to stalk a particular person we don't have a mass 
system of such interception. And according to our law, with our law, uh, it cannot exist. Sort of as a bargaining chip, too, right? Like, Putin has always had this play available of, hey, I'll turn over Snowden to you guys. At any point, if, like, there is a deal to be made, I've often thought that Trump could have probably gotten Snowden back in some sort of deal if Putin wanted to give Trump a gomer, you know, something to make him look really good and strong in the final year of his uh, presidency here, going into re-election. He gets Snowden back. It looks like he's tough. And all of that talk of doing deals with Russia, see, it paid off. They got Snowden. Do you think the U.S. administration is right to seek his return and... Um from Russia to ask him to ask you to send him back. It's a possibility, but you see, this is not the case. The problem is that we don't know whether or not the administration is right. And the problem is not that we're protecting Edward Snowden, we are not. The problem is that there's no extradition treaty between the US and Russia. We've proposed to sign such a treaty on numerous occasions, but the US refused. There are certain international rules and procedures regarding the extradition of criminals. That is, there has to be an agreement which outlines many things and gives certain guarantees. But the US refused to sign such an agreement with Russia. And the American side doesn't extradite our criminals, who committed much worse crimes than leaking secrets. Naturally, he stayed at our airport and got stranded here in Russia. So what were we supposed to do now? Send him back? Then let's draw up an extradition treaty and you'll give us our criminals. If you don't want to, fine. But why do you demand his extradition on a unilateral basis? Why this snobbery? We need to take each other's interests into account, work things out, and make sound decisions. So we're not protecting Snowden. We're defending the existing norms of bilateral relations. I very much hope that in the future, Russia and the United States will reach agreement on this subject and make it a legally binding one. This would also be a very funny, like, punchline to the Glenn Greenswalds of the world who said that he has a non-aggression mindset. But never mind that. I, I think that Snowden is realizing that he's in a game that is far bigger than him, and he'd like to be out of the game, thank you very much. I don't know that it's that easy. But I think the reason he's now doing these media rounds is he's realizing, or at least thinking, that his life is in peril and thinks that it's probably better for him to be making a lot of noise right now than not to be making a lot of noise right now. Well, that, that adds up to me. Uh, I don't know what else could be his motivation uh, other than, of course, you know, uh, getting his book more recognition. Uh, but uh, I don't... I, and I'm saying that the book is a means to an end. Yeah. Okay. His book the book is kind of his ticket if if he plays it right, I guess. Um I get you on TV. It's a credible reason to be going on TV and talking yeah. about yourself. Hey, remember me? Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden. I'm a whistleblower. Remember me? Remember me? It'd be really weird if I ended up dead. Yeah, and I think also this it hits the news cycle at a at a fortunate moment for Edward Snowden when a whistleblower is to credit uh, for why Trump is is facing potential impeachment hearings. Uh, I, I think just being under the, the umbrella of being a whistleblower, uh, people are going to forget the details of why Edward Snowden 
uh, earned that label. But what they're going to remember right now is that uh, a whistleblower is to be credited for why uh, why Trump is in a greater amount of hot water than he otherwise would be. Uh, and so, of course, I mean, if he's been writing a book, uh, then this sort of move can't have been, you know, uh, timed perfectly with that. It, it just seems kind of an hap- a happy accident for Snowden. Uh, no, that's yeah. a happy accident. Like, no, that, that works out. But I, I also think maybe Edward Snowden seeing an amazing opportunity developing here too, where he might be able to get yeah, the fuck out of Russia. Yeah. And now, uh, uh, now would be the time, as opposed to if there was a. Uh, I would think it would be a better time to do it now than if there was a Democratic president. Uh, yeah, no, uh, the goodwill that Edward Snowden would naturally have with liberals is basically gone after the Trump-Russia WikiLeaks stuff. The fact that Trump was such an embracer of WikiLeaks and Ed Snowden can be very obviously linked back to WikiLeaks. It's going to make it super toxic to deal with Ed Snowden as a Democrat. Yeah, and also, uh, depending on what how the Assange saga unfolds, I think Snowden might also... We still have the Roger Stone trial in like two months. It starts really? in November. I know, right? What a time. Yeah, I, I think he... I think he sees Assange as too much of a variable that after after whatever happens with Assange happens, his chances are likely reduced. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's also true, that he probably would have been better off if he could have gotten in before Assange. Oh, well, yeah, especially that. Especially now, that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think now, now, like, I think he wants to just be arrested and get this over with and spend whatever time he's got to spend in jail here in the United States. I think he just wants this to be over. Yeah, and, you know, uh, if he really is uh, the patriot of sorts that uh, people want him to be, you know, uh, sometimes patriots spend the rest of their lives... uh, um, you know, paying for being a patriot. And, and, and that sucks, but it's better than dying in Russia. You know, I do at times wonder about Snowden. He's a strange guy. He's a young man in his 30s. I've no idea what he's thinking of. How's he going to carry on with his life? I think he's doomed himself for quite a difficult life. I cannot even imagine what he plans to do next. We're obviously not going to extradite him, so at least he can be safe here. But what then? Perhaps in a while the US might realise that he's not a traitor or a spy, but rather a man of certain convictions which could be viewed in different ways. And perhaps some compromise could then be found. I don't know, it's his destiny and his own choice. He believes it was an honourable and justified thing to do. If he thinks he should make this sacrifice, it's up to him. I'm thinking he might be trying to play the angle of I get back into the country during one administration and I am tried during another or uh, um, 
Oh, that's interesting. Actually, the ideal re-entry time for Snowden would be right after the election, when there's all this hullabaloo and there's transition stuff, and him coming back would be like page B story the entire time because it means Trump's leaving yeah. office. Oh, oh, the the, yeah. the news cycle of when Trump is leaving office is going to be littered with all sorts of stuff that. Uh, uh, You'll be able to do anything. You'll be able to shoot a man on Fifth Avenue when Trump's leaving office. The media is going to be fixated on that. Yeah, that that's frightening. Brian, where can people find you on Twitter? At Safe Politics. You can find me at C H R I S N O V E M B R I N O. Don't worry. TV is the homepage. You can find us on Twitter at D W A T G. That's manned by Cody, who is the worst. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you check out the All in the Family podcast. We're going to be taping a couple of episodes of that here in the not-so-distant future. And until the next one, bye-bye. Bye-bye.